This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we conclude our conversation on May 68. Let's 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 get back on a uh, back on track. So I can br- I can break that out if you guys want me. Yeah, bring it. Read it. So in 2017, President Macron said that he was considering announcing commemoration of May 68, which I suppose we'll find out in a matter of weeks whether that's really going to happen. But his words were. Quote, it helped liberate things within French society, and then it perhaps broke something that you need to protect in a society. And I'm curious what people's read on that is. I mean, is it vacuous? Could we get super analytical? And no, I think and he's, he's saying something political. Like, well, I he, think- he basically wants to break, because there was that, I actually looked at that article that was in the Financial Times where it was like, Macron embodies the spirit of 68. And what, is, the argu- what the article basically argues is that Macron wants to decimate like um, what a lot of the people in the financial press call like the privileges of like the labor of like the labor aristocracy in France, and because uh, Macron wants to decimate the public sector, wants to decimate and break the power of the unions, he embodies the spirit of '68 because the '68 was in some ways, especially on the part of the students and some of the workers, a revolt against that same kind of union. Uh, and communist bureaucracy. Well, yeah, that's what Emmanuel I'm Macron does want to implement communism after he destroys the unions. Well, no, because the 68 resulted in the sort of neoliberal turn that followed, or at least um, was sort of contributed uh, to that backlash. Uh, 68 is, in a sense, connected to that. So, like, this. Macron represents, like, the true spirit of 68 because he's the neoliberal backlash. <laughs> Well, and the thing is, like the neoliberals, like I said earlier, they portray May 68 as this kind of liberation of the market almost because it's like the students are rebelling against this like bureaucracy that shows how truly conservative it really is. And a lot of neoliberal propaganda kind of presents like trade unions and um, welfare states as kind of like these bureaucracies of privilege and really like, you know, we just need to let the market decide who's the best. And so, and and also like like a lot of like like left neoliberals more so they say like oh and also like the rebellion for more sexual freedom and more general freedom in society against the authoritarian state that also embodies the neoliberal spirit. But um, I mean right. you can make obvious these are these these it is literally true that like. For example, the leader of the students, or one of not the leader, but one of the leaders of the students, one of the more anarchist guys, Daniel Convendent, they actually have like the book he wrote, and it's honestly pretty horrible. It's anti-Bolshevik Drek. But um he basically went on to become like a like a parliamentary guy in the Green Party. Like that's what he does now. And like a lot of these people 
from May 68 did grow up to become like capitalists because let's just face it, they, a lot of them were students and a lot of them ended up like kind of bringing their ideas into the workplace and into, you know, and into, into uh, political institutions even. So there is this interpretation of May 68 that it's a revolt of liberalism versus like the conservative old bureaucratic society. Yeah, I mean, you get it with even like Silicon Valley ideology. You get it a lot with like, especially in the United States, that's a big thing because the hippies were basically like May 68, but completely apolitical. Like the spirit of eight, uh, May 68, but without any kind of politics whatsoever. So yeah. it's just well, like the thing is, free like, love. In, and... in, the, in 68, an overwhelming it. amount of you who have this critique of capitalism and the capitalist state as this kind of monstrous thing that just crushes individuality. And so much of the impulse of, it was kind of like, and but the thing is a lot of these people were petty bourgeois, they were students and they kind of, because they saw capitalism as oppressing them as petty bourgeois, their, their critique of capitalism tended to take on a petty bourgeois characteristic. Which is, I'm not trying to like say that the students, the mans themselves in CCA were petty bourgeois, but you did have kind of like, you know, this, I, this, you know, a, a very petty bourgeois critique of capitalism that focused on maybe mass consumption and evils. And you can kind of see how a lot of this can be appropriated by things like ad busters and. Well, that's more true in the United States than, than, than France. Oh, yeah. I mean, part of what, especially like, you know, being an American, you know, what is actually impressive to us about May 68 is how explicitly like class-based the students' analysis was. I mean, you know, as, as maybe well, PB's yeah. orientation or some of their views were, like they did recognize that the working class was the exit out of this problem. Sort of if anything, maybe they faced too they placed too much too much faith in the working class acting on its own. That was their thing, is that the problem with that interpretation of like the neoliberal interpretation of May 60 is that the students weren't, they didn't see themselves as just simply fighting against the bureaucracy and fighting against like lack of freedom. The most radical students actually saw themselves as trying to convince the working class to overthrow the labor bureaucracy so they could form workers' councils. And, but the thing is, like, if you focus on just the aesthetic and cultural parts of May 68 and ignore like the you know the attempted merger of the workers and the students and the role that the strikes played you end up with this purely like culturalist like take on may 68 that allows it to be recuperated by neoliberalism that allows emmanuel macron to praise it in fact yeah and i thought what was interesting about that macron code is that he says that like it broke something that you need to protect in a society and i'm thinking like so what does he think it broke then exactly I mean, is he just like being like a total reactionary and saying that like we need social order and May 68 was this riotous thing that like broke the mores of like what proper social order is perhaps? Like it or, it did, could, or it could be a, it, it basically broke the mode of class composition prior to the 1970s. Right? And is also, Macron, like, is, is Macron like really like interested in like restoring the welfare state though? Like, I think Macron is kind of looking at this from like an authoritarian neoliberal view. He's like, he sees how that, like he sees it as like a revolt against the bureaucracy that held back capitalism. But he also sees it as like something that like also like kind of shook the social civic structures that like keep capitalism running smoothly. 
Well, and in fact, it just economically structures as well because it was a revolt against like kind of patriarchalism as well. Just just the economic structures too. At the end of the day, when you have a large general strike, you have the advanced economy of one of the world's great powers grinding to a slow. And so perhaps what was broken in society was just simply the circulation of capital as normal, too. I mean, that is true. But I don't know if Macron means that. I think he means this because he's saying this not as a capitalist, but as, you know, a a politician, a civil servant. And so he kind of has a different... Not, he doesn't have the exact same class positionality as a capitalist. And so I think it's interesting because he portrays himself as, as not anti-political, but kind of post-political in a very... Obama-esque way. In a very Obama-esque way. I don't know. I see Macron as basically like he's, he's a neoliberal, but he's also like a nationalist at the same time. I mean, he's not afraid to be a nationalist. And he's not afraid to... Right, but I think he wants to drain the swamp technocratically. You know what I mean? Not not that he will actually do anything positive to, you know, rebuke politics influence over society or something, but that that there is this sort of almost a drain the swamp character to his pitch, but one that relies on his technocratic ability in the same way Obama's did. Well, well it's, yeah, I, it, it's I know really last impact- oh, sorry. Though, because neoliberalism is just this idea that we need to destroy political, civic institutions and just let the market decide. I mean, the conversation like last week almost makes me think he's looking at this in a um, almost like Schmidtian way, because you know he probably like a lot of it is about like being willing to do the things that politically the two the party current parties in France aren't right. Like they're not willing to go far enough in breaking up like. Uh, the kind of like uh, civic institutions of French society. So he wants this Jupiterian presidency that will allow him to make the sweeping changes necessary for modernization and or necessary for like uh, France to thrive in like the yeah. sort of postmodern world order or whatever. Because I see him as as not just like a liberal Democrat. I actually think he does kind of have like you said his Jupiterian presidency. For example, he wasn't willing to just outright you know critique the monarchy on Bastille Day, like he said that his thoughts on the monarchy were complicated, which means that I think he does have in his worldview this kind of, uh, for example, there was a, another headline from a conservative rag about how what caused the May 68 riots was a lack of respect for authority. And I think Macron is kind of looking at it from that regard. He's saying that there was kind of this lack of respect for authority, or there is this lack of respect for authority that was lost. And, when you know, and and that kind of like made society more, I guess you know harder to control by bourgeois politicians, you know, because it is true that like a lot of the rebellion in May '68 was, you know, against the uh, traditional figures you were supposed to respect, against the priest, against the teacher, against your parents, like against authority itself. It had a very anarchistic like element to its critique, and I think Macron, like he probably like. He probably thinks the family structure is very important. And a lot of the popular, like, legacy of 68, not just in France, but, like, generally is kind of, like, this breaking with traditional sexual moralism. I don't, I don't, in a uh, break with the traditional family structure. That's kind of what Lash, like, focuses on. 
in a way that's kind of like over overstating like Macron's like anti-liberalism in comparison to say like the Obama administration, like the well, way I'd the Obama Ob- liberalism is anti-democratism. Just to clarify, anti-democracy. Yeah, but the way the way the executive branch has run in the past two like two or three administrations it's been like a like a continuous power of essentially what is what is a king position in everything but name like in terms of like the president like the president is basically a king but without like king in a constitutional monarchy but without the title really I was just gonna say one thing that's kind of weird about Macron, like wanting to like celebrate '68 or whatever, is like he is kind of in the midst of like a series of like strikes and like labor unrest, like in the country right now. I mean, I don't understand what he hopes to accomplish by doing this. I mean, is well, is that really gonna placate anybody? Yeah, wait, holy, how did I not think that's what he's talking about that you need to protect? You know, like all this labor unrest, like you know, if it was this, I, I guess it is true. What really like it was a circulation of capital, perhaps, but yeah, like. He probably remembers, oh, you know, these people just, like, didn't go to school and didn't go to work. And it was just, you know, you can't have society like that. But at the same time, it was a rebellion against bureaucracy that allowed, like, this new great form of liberalism we have today. And and all of the sort of... the You can have authoritarianism with a French character, almost. This taboo, transgressive French cultural idea right alongside this strict conservatism yeah that's true like uh baudelaire himself was like a royalist and like a you know you admired de maestra the ultimate counter-revolutionary there is like a very strong like reactionary tradition in france as well it can exist alongside that whole really shows with the uh sorry what were you saying that 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 French reactionary character can exist alongside this transgressive bend that French thinkers, intellectuals, etc., seem to gravitate towards. Always. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, well, when I mean, you, you look really at the French far right as well, and the kind of intellectuals that the French far right produces, go off of yeah, like, you, another tangent. You can even. You can even see it in like French literature, like who gets glorified. Like Marquise say, um, I can't say names, but Marquise did I say that wrong? Desaad, but yeah, basically, like it's sort of like he's the major transgressive figure in French literature. That's like inspired like major philosophers from like. Uh, Foucault and that's that sort of like wave of philosopher French philosophers but essentially he was like a weird psychotic rapist aristocrat I mean he participated in the French Revolution yeah but I'm saying is like yeah he did like represent the like an act of rebellion against like the church you think about it like from the anti-clerical viewpoint of the of the French Revolution and how so much of it was about breaking down the authority of the church. Like, the Saad's, like, crazy, like, libertine shit was, like, you know, it was an attack on the authority of the church, in a way. I mean, kind of, but I bet, like, the church was getting was a, a bunch of stuff like that, too, so. I mean, it's still in line with this sort of, like, weird aristocratic sort of sexuality that abuses the poor. 
like essentially what he did was he would kidnap he would like attack like poor people like people who had to basically sell women who had to sell their bodies in order to like survive just random people off the street just like generally it was really bad yeah he preyed upon the poor that's something he actually comes in the May 68 itself because I remember one of the slogans was something to do with Marquis de Sade or something. And if you read um, Ralph Vanagheim's Revolution of Everyday Life, which is kind of like his May 68 manifesto and what he sees May 68 as leading to, he says, you know, if one cannot see how the Marquis de Sade is just as revolutionary as Karl Marx when they do not understand anything of revolution or something like that. That sounds so really dumb. Yeah, it's really dumb. But, like, you see how 68 culture does kind of, like, include that kind of, like, it did also kind of, you know, incorporated this very transgressive sexuality, but also... The French, the French love of taboo, it's right there. Yeah, it? I know, didn't the board used to pick up teenagers? Oh, God. Honestly, the frogs are just universally disgusting the more I hear about them. <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, Sabe, fucking pedo. Not the boar. Apparently, is a pedo. Yeah. Well, I know, like, if you watch one of his movies, like, I think he's he's like hanging out with some teenage girl or whatever. Like, yeah, I guess the Marquis de Sade was the start of it all. Like, well, no, yeah, I mean, Dafe Dafe directly cool. references um uh to say in like against what is the pamphlet against, against the moral against the moral. Yeah, against a world for a world without morality or something like that. A world without moral order, I think. Moral I mean, this order, is yeah. this is the country that's harbored Roman Polanski for forty years. So, yeah. But anyway, yeah. what Beautiful are you saying? People, um, yeah, it's basically like that sort of transgressive sexuality has like, when you think about it, is actually genuinely conservative in the way that it serves a predatory upper class. Yeah, that makes sense. So anyway, yeah, that was that was a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> ten out of ten tangent, right there. Well, like uh, it's it's a lot of like this French transgressive culture is easily co-opted into like right wing ideas, and often like the right wing narrative on May sixty eight, also like the neoliberal narrative focuses on the cultural aspect. Like the right wing critique of May 68, like the fascist critique, basically. If you read like the French New Right, is that it represented like a decline of the culture and the morals of Western civilization. And it was kind of like a symptom of the decay of like Western civilization's moral authority and a destruction of the family. And it just represented like this complete like breakdown of civilization. Oh, that's that's so funny though to describe it in those terms because like you you hear that description you picture like some mad you picture like some mad max shit of people like running around like looting and pillaging but really it's just like a bunch of like a fet like college students in france throwing rocks around with scarves on well the the, the raw rights obsessed with the academy because they don't see it as like this mad max thing they see it as a gradual thing and may 60 is almost like a symptom or a, or like yeah. a breakthrough where the left becomes, like, even more academic. Because, like, you know, in May 68, after May 68, so many, like, leftist, like, students became, like, professors. And, like, it created basically, like, the whole academic, like, ruling class of the left, in a way. And I was thinking about this as well, how, like, the kind of anti-party, anti-union, like, spontaneous ideology of, like, a lot of the students 
it became like almost like in vogue in the leftist academy because like so much of uh, a lot of these students basically just became academics and it created like the whole like academic left as it exists today which is pretty anti-organizational pretty anarchistic in its attitudes yeah and culturalist as well and so it was like they tried to do the long march through the institutions but like to the actual bourgeoisie they're like oh well that's great that these people aren't joining like actual political parties because they don't get them in the academy and they'll become useless to like actual class struggle <laughs> like it was like a great actually a good thing for capitalism like yeah. this kind of like left is turned to academia is there anything else to cover or is it we good uh i wanted to talk about the socialists uh i mean the students for a democratic society a little bit Okay. Because that's always a fun that's always a fun detour in talking about sixty eight just because of how like kind of weird and sort of pathetic it was. Go on. I mean it was like the major student organization, but just how it like turned out in terms of like um just leftist infighting is just kinda hilarious to like talk about, I guess. Yeah. Like, there's one thing that I read about May 60 that was interesting, though, was how there was, like, this left unity almost. Like, in the Occupy University, like, you had people with, like, Trotsky, like, flags and Rosa Luxemburg flags and Lenin flags and black flags and Che flags and Mao flags and, like, Ho Chi Minh flags. And, like, everyone kind of just got along anyway. And, like, it was, like, left unity in action almost, like... There, there, there were huge debates between, um, especially the Trotskyists and the anarchists, apparently, and often they actually did lead to, like, physical fights. But, like, besides that, like, you actually did see this, like, attempt of the left to, like, all work together and still be able to critique each other, but they'll still have kind of, like, a common cause, which was, like, winning over the workers to, like, a, a revolutionary, like, program. Yeah. Even if they didn't but conceive the... it that way. Yeah. But the thing with, like, the S SDS is, like, basically they were trying to, like, each, it developed into sort of factions that were basically trying to take over the organization. Yeah, so you exactly. had this, like, group of Hoshis. Hoshis. I'm forgetting their name, but they're the really infamous. Party. Yeah, yeah. They came yeah, in with their li nice, yeah, they're, they're still around, but they, like, changed their ideology, sort of. Kind of became like Stalinist left comms. Yeah, it's weird. About, like, but anyways, councils and stuff, but they also are like anti-nationalist, which like was a big that made them very unpopular in the um in the SDS. But anyway, yeah, they also like dressed in suits. Like, yeah, they, they were... came in like ties, and they were big on the whole. Let's not. Yeah. They were big on the whole, let's not drink fam. They were basically the Mormons of, Yeah, like... they were very workerist, is my understanding. So, yeah, yeah, the PLP trying to take over SDS. Yeah, you had, like, the... You had, like, um, sort of, like, black nationalists. I think... Were the Panthers involved, or... I can't well, remember. I think that they kind of were, like, they, the SDS, like, kind of, like, saw them as allies, I guess. Well, and plus, like, the SDS broke up by the time the Panthers kind of became, like, a mass party. But, like, I think they were pretty, I don't know how close they were. But, like, you had, um, 
kind of had like the anarchist in SDS, like not maybe not like ideological like Bakuninist per se, but kind of like with this anarchistic like um, participatory yeah. democracy type ideology. They weren't really organized yeah, the, into a party. So yeah, that was the that was basically the original ideology of the SDS. Like as the original organization, it was just like it was. Per- participatory democracy made society it was sort of like anarcho-liberal stuff it yeah, wasn't like exactly. directly anarchist it was totally like a product of like student ideology and petty bourgeois socialism in a way <laughs> yeah but basically like yeah you're right that like it was like the progressive labor party the larushites i think even the spartacus league um different Maliks, groups of the World Workers Party, and then eventually one of these factions became the Weather Underground, obviously, and they went on to become, like, full-on, like, Maoist terrorists. And then another one of the factions actually became what is today Frizzo, or was, like, other parties came from it, too. But, like, yeah, that was one of the, um, fa- like, I think it was the Revolutionary Youth Movement 2 faction. So you had, like, just, yeah, that, you know, yeah. it's... Honest, honestly... DSA. Yeah, I was gonna make the I was uh, gonna make the comparison actually to it. It reminds me of the DSA. It's almost exactly like the DSA actually. Uh, this group with like kind of milk toast politics, like all of a sudden, it just becomes very popular, and so all these different sects rush into it to try and like make it like fit into to try to like basically like profit off of it and do an accumulation of. Like a primitive accumulation of cadre. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Like, I mean, so not... can I just tell our listeners for a moment though? I was I recently was writing about DSA, and all of a sudden Zuckerberg starts advertising to me on my Facebook timeline different stuff about the Dementia Society of America <laughs> because I just I really love it. I mean, I don't know. My official position on DSA is like it's twenty dollars. You want to join and try the experiment, but like don't expect to like join and actually turn it into a revolutionary organization. Well, no, go meet, go meet people. Who yeah, go to their stuff. Meet into people. this thing and get them into something better. Yeah, yeah. Like, actually, recruit their social interests. But let's yeah. not like lure I don't wanna, them out of the dem suck hole. I think the left, the left just needs to not get into this trap of like. What we need to do is get in DSA and then influence it and move it like to the left, and that will be the party. Like, that's what like a lot of people seem to think. I just I don't see it happening. Who's gonna? Like, so if if um you could as, try, but it's an uphill battle, and it's probably it's not going to work out. And it's the, just, the culture of the organization makes it really hard too, because it's so focused on activism as opposed to political discussion. I mean, the locals can be okay depending on where you are. It's just like the national org is just really bad suck dems that want to hold on to their power. They're they're, they're Harringtonians. Well, also, they just... like, momentum really sucks. Oh yeah. It's just basically, like a lot of these other like NPC like caucuses that have formed, like they they also yeah. pretty much suck. Like, the closest thing to a caucus that calls for, like, a, a, a dem exit, as we would say, is refoundation. But, like, even they say, well, you know, sometimes I guess it's okay to use the Democrats as a ballot line. 
So it's, you know, it's, it's such a mixed bag. But what it, uh, my understanding is PSL is trying to get people in there. IMT is trying to get people in there. Um, my question is, when is DSA going to spawn its version of the Weather Underground? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's all. We already have that, and that's like the Red Guards Austin crew. <laughs> You're, oh, my God. You're probably right. Well, the Weather Underground was way cooler than those awful people. Maoist, Antifa, like, kind of horror. But, but the Weather Underground, Weather Underground were actually blowing shit up, though. Like, that I was mean, cool. Yeah. Would Red Guards Austin actually be cooler if they were blowing stuff up, or would that just make Also, I don't think they have an... Far. I don't think they come out of the DSA. They come out of, like... They come... Uh, the or, the liaison committee of the Mao, Maoists... To, they came out like, of... Trying a to create... Attempt, yeah, just falling apart. Up. I, think, yeah. I think the Maoists, the Red Guards, probably just would not warn people ahead of time the way the Weather Underground did, too. I just hmm. I have a feeling well, we yeah, would have they have like the, the whole cult of like shining path violence is kind of a new thing. Not I mean obviously like Maoists have always like been like political power comes out of the barrel of a gun, which is you know kind of true to a certain degree, obviously. But like Maoists in like sixty eight, they didn't have the same violence fetish that violent that Maoists today have. Like this complete like shining path style, like if we need to massacre a bunch of children, so be it. And if we need to like you know, we need to, like, train, like, children to, like, be prepared to, like, do acts of brutality. So, like, when they're five years old, we'll teach them to kill chickens and stuff. Like, just, like, this insane cult of violence that, like, a lot of Maoists really, like, from Shining Path is also, like, part of Maoism. That really wasn't a part of cultural revolution style, bombard the headquarters, overthrow the capitalist rotor bureaucracy, like, type. Maoism that like May 68 students were inspired by. Every person listening needs to list needs to read the article Kink versus Vanilla by Leading Light Communist Organization. That is yeah. that horrible advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Every everything from the leading light communist org, you gotta sit in the Google Hangouts with Jason Unruh and it doesn't have Commander Prairie Fire. Spoiler. Oh, God bless his soul. We can talk about these horrible joke mouse organizations like Leading Light and stuff, but there actually was kind of an interesting mouse organization that came out of um 68. I think it formed the Forest 68, but like you had the Maoists split from the official Communist Party, which were more like traditional authoritarian Maoists. And then you had another group called, I think it was the Gosh Proletarian or something like that some weird French name, just GP for short. And um, they were like Spontex Maoists. And they kind of like created this whole ideology of Maoism based on like, you know, direct action in factories and like very, um, it's kind of like, yeah, like anarcho-Maoism. So there was like basically like a, it was kind of like the autonomous groups in Italy at the time. They were kind of like a French version of that. And they actually were like willing to critique Mao and stuff and, you know, they kind of created, like, this weird tradition of, like, I guess what's called Mao spontaneism, which is very influential, I think, in the left today, and how it's just kind of assumed that, like, everything is going to be horizontal and consensus and stuff. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a direct influence. It's just, like, it unintentionally flows from, like, anarchist ideology in the United States, because, like, 
anarchists tend not to want to like be like oh like a lot of anarchists when they get like into like debating mls they tend not to want to be like oh yeah yeah these national liberation struggles are actually awful because they're status like you get a few of them that do that but the majority are like actually you know the we could have nationalism with our anarchism and that's how you you they slowly start to turn into malice it's just like well and yeah anarchism in one country as well i wonder how many yeah. people in may 68 were thinking about like making france into a socialist paradise like just having france be like you know a socialist country by itself because it was sufficient on its own food so if we just get all of france together we can make like socialism in one country that will be better than like any other country ever because we'll also have like yeah. french liberty i mean i saw like i keep on seeing anarchists on twitter pushing like the korean anarchist movement and not gonna lie the korean anarchist movement was like it's like byproducts of it were pretty awful like like one of the main leading anarchists was ended up creating juche yeah like, like weird ethnic from nationalism blood basically blooded soil nationalism based off of like japanese propaganda that they put out at the time about the koreans being a special and unique people who are close to the japanese he slightly modified that it's like in the it's talked about in like this book called the cleanest race yeah like um anarcho-nationalist actually point to the japanese i mean not sorry the uh, korean anarchist as an example of like how nationalism and anarchism are totally compatible yeah that's totally I mean, way off tangent <laughs> yeah a bit off bit off bit, that's just the normal swamp side way you know just is is um just i mean there definitely was like a strain of utopianism running um in like kind of the spirit of 68 or whatever i mean i don't think any of i don't think a lot of the people thinking about a lot of the students were theoretically advanced enough to really look at like the geopolitical situation from like a hard materialist standpoint and go okay so how does how does france you know like have a self-sufficient economy or how do how will it relate to the rest of the eurozone you know blah 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 how do you? I mean, I think at some level that's why they never. That's why they never tackled like the question of power because it would, you know, immediately like if if somehow you manage to seize power in France, you'd have to deal with the army coming in after you, which means you actually have to have like a real guerrilla war. And yeah. uh, well, the Trotskyists believed in that they could do that, that they could take over France with Soviets and have a worker state, and that would trigger like a greater world revolution. Like they saw this as like the world revolutionary moment, and like. Basically, they had to get the workers to abandon the PCF, and they even so they achieved for the formation of workers' councils. And so, like you had, yeah, like, even with like Leninist, there was this very spontaneous idea to it. It's, and also, just kind of like a utopianist, I guess, because you know you're right. These people weren't actually probably talking about how to actually build socialism in France. They were more so just like talking about how like. You know, the revolution needs to be just as sexual as it is economic and stuff like that. Yeah, it's just going to be like an eternal festival, basically. 
Yeah, like I think there there is a lack of a real understanding of like the question of power, and the only people who really understood that were either too marginal or they were the PCF. Well, we should we should be careful to, about generalizing because we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people, millions. But, yes, because yeah, I mean there were millions. Of, I mean, like most of the country was on a strike at one point. I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, obviously a lot of those people were just kind of going along because that's what you do, but. I mean, you know, like the, well, the the fact that they were going along without a political outlook on things almost tells me, you know, people are willing to fight for their social self-interests without that. And that's not to say don't ever give people ideology or whatever, but but that the relationship is more complex between politics and action than plenty of leftists like to think. Yeah, but, like, there was also, like, a huge, like, right-wing reactionary protest that actually was larger than, like, any of the student actions um, that took place of just people who were, like, pissed off and were mad about, like, communists. Majority or whatever? Yeah, the silent majority. Like, there was actually, like, there's a famous picture of someone, like, holding, like, a black flag in May in Paris, but with, and there's a huge protest. But the protest actually is basically like the quote unquote black hundreds of France, like the reaction. Well, I mean, apparently there, there was like a real social conservatism in France that like held people back even on the left. I think. Sure, but I mean you don't you don't get mass numbers that shut down an economy with the kind of with the kind of clickish strategy and numbers that I think would conform to a mass with a single political line you you have to account for people acting on their own independent self-interest to some extent if we're talking about all this spontaneity right well that's kind of what's the point i think it's clear that the situationists didn't call everybody out there we've talked about how their role is sometimes overstated but did the students you know, to what extent were they tailing the students? I think is an interesting question about the workers. Well, and one here's for a bit of perspective. I guess there was a survey that was conducted um, shortly after the events, and basically, twenty percent of the populations um, in this poll said they would have supported a revolution. Twenty-three percent said they would have been against it, and the rest uh, would have just avoided getting involved. Um, and then I guess it was also asked if that if a if the, if the army came in to stop to crush it. 33% said they would have fought against that. 5% said they would have supported it, and everyone else would have stayed out of it. I so, mean, I mean yeah, that's I a large that's, number that's, of people supporting revolution and conflict with the military. Yeah, that's, that's actually very impressive. And I think, like, one of the ideas of May 68 was, like, we're not just fighting for, like, we're also fighting for our own self-liberation. That was, like, a big idea. And that capitalism is bad not just because it makes people poor, but because it stifles our creativity and stifles our, you know, our true potential as individuals, as social beings, which is an important part of Marxism and why a lot of the students' critiques were more radical and way than the PCFs. But the thing is, the working class is the majority of society, essentially, and it is the class that is capable of mobilizing to change society. And... Well, the mass consciousness of the working class was not revolutionary, despite the fact that the Communist Party was huge and controlled the unions. And I think, like, the fact that that many people went out on strike really showed 
how powerful the unions were in France, the CGT, and how powerful the Communist Party was, like, in a way. That's really why the strike was able to happen when in no other, like, student revolt you saw something like that happen. So, uh, final verdicts. Was revolution possible? Uh, apparently not. <laughs> I mean, because if, 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 if the PCF and the trade unions were that big of an obstacle to actually contesting for power in a fundamental way, I mean, it sounds like the answer is no. How much am I allowed to play with Legos here? I mean, what what circumstances are we changing to make revolution? Because, like um, Jim said, in the exact circumstance, revolution was impossible because it didn't happen. I don't know. Play with Legos. Okay, it was it was possible, but after you have a revolution, there are limits there too. So you cross that bridge when you get to it, maybe. I mean, I think, I mean, if, if you, if you could have either somehow gotten the workers to form more solid, like institutions independent of the leadership that they were under, or if you could get the leadership that they were under to budge and to basically submit to the, uh, you know, more this more like basically basically commit right. to become if revolutionary. It was forced to press forced by pressure from the masses in some kind of way. Yeah. So basically, maybe if the PCF had some kind of left opposition within, maybe within or without the party, but that didn't exist. Like just the closest to that was the Trotskyists. So I don't know. Or like the fact that the PCF was like the leader of the working class, and the working class is a class that is decides whether or not it's going to make a revolution and the PCF was you know main wanted was you know they were counter-revolutionary so therefore I don't really think it was possible because but at the same time they there was strike and everybody's another party contesting with them that was more revolutionary and yes sure but, but you know you say strike and everybody strikes I think that that speaks not just to the power of unions because that power has to be derived from somewhere. And I don't think it was just blind loyalty to the unions that made that an appealing call. Well, not blind loyalty to the unions, but like, I think, honestly, it probably was, you know, the unions had avoided striking for a while because they became really corporatist with the government. So like, yeah, going on strike. Like, you know, when, you're right. If anything, they were still like off. Yeah, that's, that's true. So, yeah, I think, you know, there was a mass appeal beyond, like, what the bureaucrats wanted. And I feel like they probably, probably, you know, there was probably some pressure from the workers to, you know, take advantage of this opportunity and go on strike. It's just that the union leaders and the workers as well, because the workers are the ones who voted for these leaders. They shared a commitment to getting the biggest slice of the pie possible in capitalism and making that the priority. Yeah, and it seems like nobody was really presenting, like, a clear plan for actually yes. like how to how to take power and how That's to another problem there wasn't like there wasn't a group that had a significant following that could put out a message of what could happen the day after the revolution like, what is the plan let's say we don't just want to end the strike and stop the riots what could we actually do there wasn't anyone like actually giving a real answer to that because you had people running out saying workers councils workers councils but like it just kind of assumes that like if workers councils form like they can become like the uh, the center of authority that can take care of what happens after the revolution on their own they'll become and, the social brain yeah like it's it's kind of just like once workers councils form like 
the workers are going to like, use them for revolutionary ends when that's like, you know, that's not guaranteed to happen. So I think that uh, there, there really wasn't a plan beyond like this vague call for workers' councils and how let's take it a step further. And I mean, you know, I think like creating something like there were like worker student assemblies that like kind of like attempted to be proto-Soviets, but they weren't as big as um as you know the actual Soviets and workers' councils were in Russia and Germany. Yeah, so and the the missing have that same authority over events in their sort of area, you know. Basically, they were they were trying to basically conjure a revolutionary workers like political formation out of thin air, essentially. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of like what it would have required, or it would have required like some very like effective like. Like, you know, the the entire, like, non-PCF left would have had to, like, become very united and very effective or something yeah. like that. Or, or there, the, maybe the missing Lego piece is, like, an organization like that already in existence with some mass base, even if it was considerably smaller than the PCF, that could have organized as an alternative and presented. Yeah, and I think is that, like, the thing is that France is, like, about colonialism is very socially conservative. And France is basically like very racist and very angry about their lost colonial empire. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, even the PCF, like they, they um, opposed immigration in 1980 and they supported colonialism. And so like there was, and because like a big like thrust of the revolution was this like anti-colonial, like anti-French, like impulse. Like I think a lot of people like were really offended by that and they had like basically racist social conservative viewpoints and these were very influential in society and the revolt was very much also against those impulses you know because like i said anti-imperialism and opposition to vietnam was like a very big part of the actual infrastructure of the actual students revolt Lot to talk about. A lot of dimensions to this that we didn't really even get to. In a couple of weeks, we're gonna read some stuff by Badu, and he has this idea of an ontology situated around the event as this sort of focal point that restructures reality in a way. I haven't read about this stuff in a while, but that's my understanding of it. It almost seems like May 68 was a big thing that not only shaped his politics, but um, shaped his outlook and a lot of shit. And that's true about France, generally. They still talk about it 50 years later. I still like May 68, though. I mean, it's definitely overrated, maybe overrepresented, but... I mean, any time that the working class, for whatever reason, can almost bring a country to its knees... Well, it's, you know, it's nothing to sneeze at. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechance at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or if you want to just uh, straight up give us some money, you can uh, send us some money on PayPal, uh, to Communist League of Tampa at gmail.com. 
or if you use Cash App, you can pay dollar sign CL Tampa. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.